Well, good evening. It's great to see everyone tonight, and for anyone from the community uh, whom I don't know, I'm Steve Scutt, the president of the college, and uh, it's a real pleasure to see so many folks here tonight for what I think is going to be a very special and important evening. Um, Lake Forest College, for many years, has had as part of its mission statement um, the expression that we embrace diversity. Uh, and that, that is an aspiration that presents challenges and opportunities, I think, every year, and changes in character and nature sometimes as, as new challenges or opportunities arise. One of the ways in which we try to recognize those opportunities and challenges and think about them in new ways is by periodically bringing to campus um, really interesting, innovative, and important speakers who can help us do that. Uh, and so tonight is going to be one of those nights, and uh, I think we'll all uh, have an interesting evening and really benefit from both a wonderful lecture and some opportunity for questions and answers after the lecture as well. Let me take just a moment before introducing our speaker to say thanks, uh, first of all, to the Gorder Family Foundation uh, and to the college's Mojekwu Fund and Islamic World Studies programs for collectively providing uh, support for today and for this evening. Um, our speaker tonight has spent the day on campus um, meeting with student groups, faculty and staff groups as well, and so uh, this is the end of what has been a long day for Dr. Ibu Patel, um, our welcome speaker tonight. Uh, and we're very grateful to have him here. Let me say just a little bit about him, uh, who he is and where he, uh, where he comes from. Um, but Ibu Patel is the founder and president of Interfaith Youth Corps. Um, which is a national nonprofit that is working to make interfaith cooperation a social norm. Uh, in that role, he's become a recognized and leading voice in the movement for interfaith cooperation, led, I believe, by colleges and ca college campuses nationwide. He's the author of several books, including Acts of Faith, Sacred Ground, and the forthcoming Interfaith Leadership. And some of his books are at the back for anyone who is interested in, in purchasing one tonight. He's been named uh, as one of America's best leaders by U.S. News and World Report and has served on President Obama's in inaugural Faith Council. He's a regular contributor to the public conversation around religion in America and a frequent speaker on the topic of religious pluralism. Ibu Patel is a Rhodes Scholar who holds a doctorate in the sociology of religion from Oxford University in England. And for the past 15 years, really more than 15 years, he's worked with governments, social sector organizations, and college and university campuses to help realize a future where religion is a bridge of cooperation rather than a barrier of division. To quote Dr. Patel, to see the other side, to defend another people, not despite your tradition, but because of it, is the heart of pluralism. And America is exceptional, not because there is magic in our air, but because there is fierce determination in our citizens. Please join me in welcoming Ibu Patel. Thank you so much. So last week marked the 50th anniversary of the week that Martin Luther King Jr. moved to Chicago for a period of time. 
Uh, he moved here to address the housing crisis, especially racism and housing on the south side of Chicago, famously marched through Marquette Park and for his efforts had a brick thrown and uh, actually struck his head. Uh, spoke about the hope he saw in Chicago and the challenges as well. Martin Luther King Jr. has been on my mind. Uh, he's often on my mind, but these past couple of weeks, even more so because I feel like the 50th anniversary brings his presence that much closer. I want to tell a story about Martin Luther King Jr. that is not oft traced. We think of King in so many ways. In my mind, he is maybe the greatest American of the 20th century. He is, of course, a great paragon of nonviolence, a civil rights hero, an African-American icon, a global uh, uh, icon for so many people from different backgrounds. But for tonight, I want to trace his journey as an interfaith story. And I want, I want to start in a moment in his educational career when he actually went to see a guest speaker when he was a student at Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. He went to see a man named Mordecai Johnson, great African-American theologian and intellectual president of Howard University, was at a place called Fellowship House in the city of Philadelphia. Mordecai Johnson was speaking on the subject of Christian love. And in the course of that sermon, he uses as the primary embodiment of Christian love the example of an Indian Hindu, Mahatma Gandhi. President Johnson had recently been to India and had an opportunity to see Gandhi's work up close and personal and thought to himself that this is the most Christ-like person that the 20th century had produced. I think often of what young Martin Luther King Jr., maybe 21, 22 years old at the time, must have been thinking. He was raised in a black Baptist family in a largely black Baptist milieu in Atlanta, Georgia. To Baptist church several times a week, a Baptist college, Morehouse. He was in line to be a pastor. That's why he was in seminary. What must he have thought to hear his hero, the keystone of his faith, really the compass for who he was about, Jesus Christ, modeled by somebody who was not from his country, or his religion. I think what strikes me about King and a part of his greatness was that King did not attempt to simply remove the example of Gandhi from his mind thinking I have no lexicon in which to hold this figure. Instead he began to identify the parts of Gandhi's theology and the parts of Christian theology in which he saw resonances. And one of the things that King notices is that Gandhi takes the Hindu commitment to nonviolence, which he actually reads through the Jain tradition, the term ahimsa, nonviolence or non-harm. His interpretation of that is more radical than anything King had ever thought before. King had often viewed Jesus' approach to nonviolence as something relevant largely in personal, familial relations. But Gandhi had turned it into a social reform movement. King was challenged by that. If Gandhi could find this in Hinduism, what might King, going deeper into the Christian tradition, wearing, if you will, the lens of Gandhi's Hinduism, what might he discover? I have this image of young Martin Luther King Jr. back at Crozier Theological Seminary in the library, a half dozen books from the Christian tradition on his left, the Bible, and Tillich, and Niebuhr, and Rochenbusch, and a half dozen 
biographies of Gandhi on his right, reading across these different traditions, challenging himself to go deeper into the value of nonviolence, to ask the question what it might mean for him and America at that point in history. King goes on to do his PhD at Boston University on Tillich, actually, and gets his first call, a little but well-known church in Montgomery, Alabama, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And in 1955, late in that year, on a fateful day, Rosa Parks decides enough is enough and refuses to give up a seat on a famed bus in that city. And the senior African-American leadership of Montgomery, Alabama think to themselves, this is the time and we have the person. And they knocked on Martin Luther King Jr.'s door, all of 26 years old at the time. And they said, we'd like you to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association. We would like you to lead some kind of campaign against the way buses are segregated in this city. And young King thinks to himself, we are going to go Gandhi on this town. <laughs> you know, the way that this is presented, I think, in a lot of high schools is that Rosa Parks was a little bit tired. She didn't give up that seat on that best. Martin Luther King Jr. descended from heaven. Then racism went away and we elected Barack Obama. Right? It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. And the bus boycott itself was an awful lot more complicated than that. The African Americans of Montgomery walked to work for over 380 days. Think about that for a second. That boycott didn't last a week, didn't last a month, didn't last six months. It lasts over a year. And it was a fraught and difficult, intense period. The stress got so high that some people committed suicide. King's house was firebombed. This was in the age before cell phones. He was at a church one night ready to give a, a spirit-lifting sermon, and he sees his friend Ralph Abernathy fidgeting at the side, and he calls him forth, and he says, Ralph, what's going on? And Ralph doesn't want to say, but he's been asked, and he says, Martin, your home has been bombed. And King says, are the baby and Coretta okay? And Abernathy says, we don't know. They put him in a car, they take him to his house, and he literally walks into the kitchen to see if his baby and his wife are still alive, and they are frightened, shaking. A crowd starts to gather in the lawn, things get a little tense and stressful, as you might imagine. King goes out, and at that moment, after seeing his house firebombed, gives a talk about the importance of Christian nonviolence, about the righteousness of the boycott, how they will stick to the path of Christian love. Writes later in his biography, he said, if only all those people knew that when I said Christian love, what I really meant was how Gandhi taught me to read the Bible. After the bus boycott was over, and we gotta remember for all of its vaunted role in American history, at the end of the day, what King and the Montgomery Improvement Association wins in the bus boycott is the right to sit front to back in the buses of one provincial city in the American South. And a journalist points this out to him and says, you know, Martin, I mean, aren't you angry? Think about all that you went through. Think about all that you suffered for this little victory. And King says, this isn't the time for anger. This isn't the time for revenge. This is the time for reconciliation. This is the time for redemption. This is the time to build the beloved community.
That is young Martin Luther King Jr. living more deeply into his Christian roots after applying the lens and interpretation of Gandhi's idea of nonviolence. It's young King beginning his interfaith journey. King is so moved by Gandhi that he wants to do what Mordecai Johnson did. He wants to go see his work up close and personal. By the time King gets there in 1959, Gandhi's been dead for over a decade. But King still wants to be a witness to what has happened and to the legacy. And what astounds King really more than anything else about what Gandhi has left in India is that it's not just a Hindu movement that he created. King meets Buddhists and Jains and Muslims and secular humanists and Christians and Sikhs, all who consider themselves a part of Gandhi's Satyagraha, part of his love force movement. And he gets to hear the riffs of Satyagraha and all of these different religions. He returns to his pulpit at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And he says, the first Sunday he is back preaching happens to be Palm Sunday. The second to last line in his Palm Sunday sermon is, O oh God, our gracious heavenly Father, we call you this name. We know some call you Allah. We know some call you Jehovah. We know some call you Elohim. We know some call you the unmoved mover. King is advancing in the interfaith journey. King is learning from people of different religious backgrounds. King is understanding rifts on shared values in different traditions. He's developing an appreciative knowledge across these world religions. In 1963, King begins what might be his most important personal interfaith relationship. It actually happens again in the city of Chicago at the Conference on Religion and Race. King comes and brings his famous sermon from the Hebrew Bible in the book of Amos. Let justice rain down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And in the back of that hall, there is a man who escaped the trains running from Warsaw to Auschwitz by six weeks. A man who, I think, if there was anybody in the 20th century had a right to focus only on his own people, it was this man. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel sees six million, six million of his fellow Jews murdered in Hitler's hellfires. Literally, his entire family, a whole Hasidic line wiped out. Heschel was saved. He comes to America. He takes up a position at the Jewish Theological Seminary on the Upper West Side. And he starts to feel the vibrations of the civil rights movement. And he starts to read about this young American prophetic voice named Martin Luther King Jr. And he starts to feel drawn to it, to the point where he wants to do what Hindus call darshan with king. Darshan means a personal witnessing. He's in Chicago that day. He is watching King preach from his holy book, the Hebrew Bible. And he thinks to himself, the soul of Judaism is at stake in the civil rights movement. Two years later, in the famous march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, the man with the long bushy beard and the iconic photograph marching arm in arm with King is the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He later says, I know that King and I, we pray in different ways. I'm an Orthodox Jew. He's an African-American Baptist from the South. But in Selma, I felt like my legs were at worship. 
This, of course, was dramatized in the beautiful film from a couple of years ago. And one of the things I love most about that film is that it brings so many of King's interfaith strands together. Selma was an interfaith movement. Not only was there Abraham Joshua Heschel but from the Upper West Side of New York there, but James Reeb, the Unitarian Universalist minister from Boston, was there, lost his life in mob violence in Selma. The great Jesuit priest Dan Berrigan was there saying, is the church the place we are from? That bricks and mortar? Or is it the people here in Selma? A nun in full habit walking down Highway 80 in that city said as if in direct response to Father Berrigan, we are the church. Malcolm X, a post-Hudge Malcolm X, was in Selma speaking directly with Coretta Scott King, climbing into the pulpit of a church, giving a sermon on reconciliation just a few weeks before he was gunned down in the Audubon Ballroom. Selma, 1965, an interfaith movement led by Martin Luther King Jr., an interfaith hero. 66, King begins a correspondence with the great Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh writes him a letter that says, Dear Reverend King, I want to let you know that we Buddhists of Vietnam, we regard you as a bodhisattva, as one who has attained enlightenment and can choose to enter nirvana, but instead has decided to stay on earth and teach the spiritual principle of compassion to other people. Reverend King, does your compassion extend to those of us who suffer from the war in Vietnam? It begins a radical rethinking of King's international philosophy, brings him to Riverside Church a year later in 1967 on an April 4th talk called A Time to Break Silence, a year to the day before he was murdered. And in that talk, A Time to Break Silence, King utters what I think is amongst his most profound interfaith statements. He talks about the supreme unifying principle of life existing in every single religious tradition that he knows, and he names them all, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and he says that that principle is love. And he calls on people to live that out in their cities, in the country, and around the world. April 4th, 1968, Lorraine Motel, Memphis, Tennessee, King's last day on earth. He was in Lorraine, he was in Memphis at the Lorraine Motel to speak on the Poor People's Campaign in Memphis. And he was on his way to celebrate the Passover Seder with his closest friend in the civil rights movement, the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Martin Luther King Jr. was many things. Amongst them, he was an interfaith hero. One of my favorite lines in King is in, in the last book of his, a 1967 book called, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? King references a writer, long dead. He says that in the papers that were found after this writer had passed away was this idea for a final novel that she never got to write, a novel called The World House. And the premise of the novel was that one day all of us woke up to a letter in our mailboxes, same letter. We'd all inherited this great grand world house and we could live in it. But there was the deal. 
there was this deal. All of us, and now King quotes, Easterner and Westerner, black and white, Northerner and Southerner, Jew and Gentile, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, all of us, because we could never again live apart, had to learn to live together. That's King's imagination of the world house. One of the things that strikes me about that is that this is 1967. This is way before the time that scholars were telling us that the United States is maybe the most religiously diverse nation in human history. Way before the time in which it was very clear that we were the most religiously devout nation in the West. King had an extremely well-honed interfaith radar screen. Although religious tensions were not the most live tensions of his time in his place in the United States, he could see how important they were going to be later. He called on us to pay attention, not just to Easterner and Westerner, black and white, Northerner and Southerner, but also to Jew and Gentile, to Muslim and Hindu, to Catholic and Protestant, to believer and non-believer. What does that look like for us in 2016? What strikes me is that in this vast diversity that is American society, the 320 million of us, that diversity can become many things. It can become a bunker of isolation. It can become a barrier of division. It can become a bludgeon of domination. Or it can be a bridge of cooperation. Martin Luther King Jr. was obviously about building bridges. But here's the thing about bridges. They do not fall from the sky, and they do not rise from the ground. I don't think it helps any of us to think about King as in the way that Cornell West uh, playfully says, that it's the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King Jr., as if he rides into our lives on this magic chariot and rides off on a reindeer. What is striking about King is actually just how human he is, just how we can trace his journey of learning. I like to think of that journey of learning in the interfaith sense as building this bridge. And I want to walk through some of the kings that King, I want to walk through some of the things that King does especially well in building an interfaith bridge. One, the ability to identify shared values between different traditions. This starts obviously with Gandhi. He identifies nonviolence as a shared value between Hinduism and Christianity. But it's so pat, so easy, so elementary school to say, well, we share this little thing called nonviolence. King was theologically deep about this. King wanted to know where Gandhi got his Hindu ideas of nonviolence. He wanted to go into the Bhagavad Gita. He wanted to know what Gandhi saw in the Sermon on the Mount, in the works of Leo Tolstoy, how he was reading the Jain tradition into the Bhagavad Gita. King was obviously even more sophisticated about his Christian theology. The notion of shared values is not some simple thing that is shared across different religions. It's the question of what is nonviolence? What is compassion? What is hospitality? What is love in these deep, vast, historic traditions? A Buddhist might approach the idea of peace in a different way than a Muslim does. To share a value begins a conversation on how it is we approach something of great depth and complexity. King was able to immediately identify what was shared and was not in any way afraid of the depth and complexity. Number two, King had 
a well-articulated theology of interfaith cooperation, a well-articulated Christian theology. One of the things that strikes me so much about Martin Luther King Jr. is that as his wings spread across these vast traditions, these different friendships, these remarkable influences, as he became friends with Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, as he uh, walks with Heschel, as he corresponds with Thich Nhat Hanh, his roots in Christianity grow deeper. I said before that the second to last line in that Palm Sunday sermon in 1959 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church was about the name of God in different religions. You know what the last line was? Who will come to the altar and take and give themselves to the living Christ. Even as King was fascinated and moved and inspired by different religions, he ends his sermon in the way black Baptist ministers have often ended their sermons with an altar call. King is not less Christian because he is more interfaith. His roots grow deeper as his wings grow wider. One of my favorite lines in Martin Luther King Jr. is when he says, many people want to make of me many things, but in the deep recesses of my heart, I'm a Baptist minister. I'm the son of a Baptist minister. I'm the grandson of a Baptist minister. I'm the great-grandson of a Baptist minister. My commitment to Jesus as the son of the living God is the highest commitment I have. When I hear that line as a Muslim, I find it so liberating that my interfaith hero was unabashed in his embrace of his faith. I don't have to be less Muslim to be an interfaith leader. I have to be more Muslim to be an interfaith leader. King found in Christian theology the raw materials that helped to form the bridge of interfaith cooperation. King, for all that he called on America to change, reads America as a story that can be perfected as a nation that, as James Baldwin, his contemporary, said, we had to achieve. He gives this great talk at Lincoln University where he says, the dream of America is a dream of people from the four corners of the earth, people praying in different languages who can come together to build a nation. A lot of people read the history of diversity, especially the history of religious diversity, as simply a history of conflict, as a clash of civilizations. They only want to know the bad stuff. Tell me when the Jews and Muslims have fought. Tell me when the Hindus and Sikhs have fought. Tell me again the story of the Catholics and Protestants at each other's throat. That's not the way King saw it. It's not that those things didn't exist. But as Susan Sontag once said, whatever is happening, there is always something else going on. King sought out the history of cooperation. Tell me the history of America as an ideal. Tell me the times when Thomas Jefferson spoke of what we could be. Not, the Thomas, not Thomas Jefferson, the slaveholder, Thomas Jefferson, the freedom fighter, because both are true. Not George Washington, the slaveholder, but George Washington, the man who writes a letter to the manager at his estate, Mount Vernon, saying, I want to make sure that the workmen at Mount Vernon are from all different backgrounds and names Christian, Quaker, Jew, Mohammedan, Muslim, and says, it doesn't matter to me where they are from, what they believe, as long as they can do the work. I don't think there was ever a better definition of America. It doesn't matter where you are from or what you believe. You are welcome here as long as you are willing to work to achieve this country. King saw in American and other history that line, that thread 
of cooperation, of possibility, and he sought to make it real. And finally, King sought an appreciative knowledge of other people's religions. It's not that Hinduism doesn't have a dark side or Buddhism or Judaism or Islam, and it's not that King was totally uninterested in it, but his primary question was, I want to know what it is in your tradition, Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, Mahatma Gandhi, Malcolm X, Abraham Joshua Heschel. I want to know what it is in your tradition that would inspire me, that I can resonate with. He sought an appreciative knowledge of these other traditions. You know, one of the thing, things that strikes me right now is how people have a seeming alacrity for the bad stuff in other people's religions. When you talk to people about what they know about Islam, it's some version of what happened on last night's news. Right? Well, Islam is a tradition that's 1,400 years old, that has produced prophets and poets, that has given rise to remarkable buildings from the Taj Mahal to the Sears Tower. Yes, the man who designed the Sears Tower was a Muslim, Fazlur Rahman Khan, that has inspired artists and athletes from Muhammad Ali to most deaf. To only know the bad stuff about a tradition is just to not be educated about it. Psychologists actually have a fancy term for this. It's called availability bias. That so many of us default to the available knowledge we have about another tradition or population or country or people. Well, listen, if you do that, the only thing you know about an entire religion or an entire country or an entire city is what's displayed on last night's evening news. I promise you, your window into the tradition is only going to be negative. One of the things that strikes me about Martin Luther King Jr. was that he didn't do that. He wanted to know from Hinduism what inspired him. He wanted to know in Buddhism what he as a Christian could resonate with. He sought an appreciative knowledge. These are the raw materials of an interfaith bridge, an appreciative knowledge of other religions, a personal theology of interfaith cooperation, knowing what it is in your own tradition that would inspire you to do this work. Knowledge of the history of interfaith cooperation, not just the clash of civilizations, not just the times that people have fought, but the times when they have cooperated, when they've worked together in ways that are inspiring. And shared values, the ability to identify what is shared between different traditions, not in a simplistic way, but in a way that cracks open the depth and complexity. Now here's the thing, if we look at these things as the theology, as appreciative knowledge, as shared values, if you look at them as stones, if you will, in a bridge, those same stones can be used to form very different structures. You can look in history for moments of conflict. You can find in your theology ways where you're not supposed to get along with people from other backgrounds. You can identify values that are very different between religions. In other words, you can look in theology and in history and in other traditions for the kind of stones that would build barriers or bunkers or be used as bludgeons. I think the challenge for interfaith leaders is to change the narrative, is to put on a different lens, to effectively say to all those people out there whose eyes are only looking for the stones useful for barriers or bludgeons or bunkers, my eyes are gonna look for the stones useful for bridge building. And I'm gonna put them together in a way that creates a bridge that leads to a place called pluralism. At IFYC, the organization that I lead, 
we don't talk so much about celebrating diversity, in part because we know a lot about it. We know that diversity is not easy, and frankly, it's not always a good thing. We follow a Harvard scholar on this named Diana Eck. I know there's a lot of Princeton people in the audience. Give me some grace while we quote from a Harvard scholar for a moment. A Harvard scholar named Diana Eck who makes a distinction between diversity and pluralism. She points out that diversity is simply the fact of people from different backgrounds living in close quarters. It says nothing good or bad. It can just as easily become conflict than cooperation. In fact, it might more easily become conflict than cooperation. Baghdad is, after all, a diverse place. It is also, on some days, a virtual civil war. Pluralism, unlike diversity, is not just a fact. It's an achievement. Pluralism is a destination that we seek to build our bridge towards. Pluralism is a place where people's identities are respected, where there are relationships between people from diverse backgrounds and commitments, and where there is a commitment to the common good. I want to say that again, the three parts of pluralism, respect for diverse identities, relationships between people from those communities, and a commitment to a larger idea of a common good. I want to point out for a moment that respect for diverse identities is no easy thing because diversity is not just about the differences you like. Diversity is also about the differences you and I might not like. Diversity is about disagreements. If in a diverse society we have respect for identities with, from which we disagree, that is a challenge. If I, as a Muslim, believe it is part of my faith commitment to celebrate Eid, the end of Ramadan, the end of the Hajj period, by eating goat as a part of celebrating, especially at the end of the Hajj period, uh, how God replaces uh, Abraham's son with an animal. And that is part of a religious celebration. That is a very deep difference from how a Jain regards what is holy when it comes to food. Jains not only are vegetarian, they don't eat potatoes or carrots or onions, regarding them as tuber vegetables still alive. That is a fundamental disagreement, one that in the dining hall of a college campus is at some point going to come to light, perhaps to flare up. How do Muslims and Jains how do people who have different ideas of Jesus, how do people who do and do not believe in God, how do people who think differently about where to draw the line in the Middle East, how do these people live in a society together? Well, you have to leaven respect for diverse identities with relationships. The ability to relate positively with somebody with whom you might have other disagreements. And there has to be some idea of the health of the whole, some idea that we all share Lake Forest College. We want to make it strong. We all share the Chicagoland area, and we want to make it strong. We all share the environment, the nation, the Constitution. We want to make sure that these principles, whether they're abstract or ground level like safe streets, are strong. Bottom line, we build our interfaith bridges with the raw materials of appreciative knowledge of other traditions 
of shared values between different traditions of history and theology. We build them to a place called pluralism. Pluralism, I think, is the test of a diverse democracy. In pluralism, you basically recognize the ethic that the only way to have a healthy, diverse democracy is for people who disagree with each other on some fundamental things to be able to work together on other fundamental things. How else do you have a country of 320 million people chanting God's name in different ways and some none at all, all with the right to speak their mind, to run for office, to start nonprofit organizations? How do you have a religiously diverse democracy unless we have a commitment to be able to disagree on some fundamental things and work together on other fundamental things? You know, I love being on college campuses because I don't know if there's any other space in American society or anywhere else, frankly, where over the course of a day, we can meet with folks who create the culture of this campus, which are student affairs staff, meet with young 18, 19, 20 year olds, some of you I see in this audience, right, who are learning in sociology, 300 classes. They hear a lecture or read a book and they think to themselves, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to do, to work with faculty who are doing research on these kinds of projects, creating new pedagogies, and have the opportunity to work with administrators like President Scott who are saying, I just want to make sure that I am creating an environment where big ideas can get baked and come to light. Right? I love college campuses because some 19-year-old is in a conversation in some residence hall and thinks to him or herself, you know what, it would be such a great idea to get the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship together with the Hillel, with the, with the Secular Students Alliance and the Muslims, Muslim Students Association and put together a bottled water drive for Flint, Michigan. If there's something that we all share, it's that everybody deserves clean water and it's a travesty that there's a place in this country that doesn't have it. And that's something that we can mobilize on and we can use that service project as an opportunity to talk about what holiness in water means to our different traditions. Muslims can speak about Zamzam. Christians can speak about baptism. On a college campus, you can go from idea to reality so fast. And that's why we love working at these places. And that's why I've loved my day here, President Scott and others. Thank you so much for inviting us to, to spend time with your community. And one of the things that I tell 19 and 20 year olds a lot is, man, enjoy it. Because standing up on this podium, I would trade places with you pretty darn fast. One of the most... Um, let's say, unsettling moments in my young adulthood, about six months after I graduated from college, was when I woke up one day and I was like, where are all the people telling me how great my new idea is? <laughs> well, believe it or not, all the college staff in the room are laughing. Because <laughs> they know that, yes, your idea might be great, and also their job is to tell you it's great. And to help you nurture it into something that is even greater. College campuses are places where you get to have an idea, where you get to go deep, deep, deep into that idea, and where you get to make it reality, where you can take your Sociology 300 presentation and make it a student group, where you can come downtown to Interfaith Youth Corps, do a workshop with us, and come up here back to Lake Forest College and start a Better Together group or campaign. I want to remind you where we began this lecture with Martin Luther King Jr., 
His interfaith journey begins on a college campus at Crozier Seminary, 21 years old. The age that a lot of you are right now. A lecture gives him a big idea, and he wants to become that person. I want to end with actually my favorite bridge in the world. It's actually a literary bridge. It's from Italo Calvino's masterful novel of vignettes, Invisible Cities. And the uh, uh, conceit of the book is that the great traveler Marco Polo travels across Kublai Khan's empire and returns to tell stories of the various parts of the empire to the great Khan. And interestingly, at the end, we find out that all of the cities that Marco Polo is describing are actually a single city. There are different angles on Venice. And in one of these vignettes, Marco Polo tells the story of a bridge. And Kublai Khan gets impatient and says, well, I don't want to hear all of this, the bells and whistles about this bridge. Tell me about the stone that holds the bridge together. And Marco Polo responds, great Khan, it's not a stone that holds the bridge together, it's an arch. And Kublai Khan says, well, then tell me about the arch. And Marco Polo says, well, great Khan, without stones, there is no arch. And I think about that a lot as I'm 15 years into building Interfaith Youth Corps. Um, we have a new strategic plan, and we talk a lot about quantitative aspirations, how many campuses we want to work with, how many students we want to train. But more and more, we also talk about this thing called craft. Right? What does it mean to collect the stones of an interfaith bridge? to collect the right piece of history, the right piece of theology, the right shared value, to polish those stones and to put them together lovingly into a structure that leads to this destination called pluralism that to the vast majority of our countrymen is an abstract and scary place. But because of the way the bridge is put together, because of its beauty, because the trust they have in you, or in me as an interfaith leader, people are willing to risk the journey. That's why we point the bridge to the place called pluralism. That's why we build that bridge. That's why we follow the heroes who went before, like Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you so much. so much. I'm sure glad King, King's anniversary in Chicago was last week. Gave me a lot of inspiration for this talk. Thank you for coming. Uh, I think we have about 15 minutes for questions and answers, if, or maybe just questions, depending on how interested I am in the questions. We might just keep on get just collecting questions. Um, but we have 15 minutes for a Q&A for, for folks who are... Yeah, there's a mic up here unless you feel confident that you can be heard. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I grew up right next to Wheaton College. In fact, I went to a concert there in like 1991, and I was like, 
something strange. About halfway through, I'm like, nobody's dancing. That's just right. Um, so I have a ton of respect for Wheaton College. Um, a ton of respect for Wheaton College. And I think that there are different, so part of, part of the, one of the, probably actually the political philosopher who I uh, feel most aligned with is an Oxford Don named by Isaiah Berlin. And one of his great contributions to philosophy is something called values pluralism. Uh, and it's, it's in a way a response to Aristotle. I don't want to get super geeky here, but Aristotle thought that the various virtues of the world basically all folded up, right? That they, they, were, they were all in coherence and harmony. And, uh, and Isaiah Berlin said, actually, in, in our world, there's values pluralism, which is to say that, that there are different goods in our society, and sometimes those goods are in tension with each other. And I think that continuity of identity is a good, right? And Wheaton College, one of its highest values is continuity of identity. And I think that inquiry, expression, especially on the part of faculty, is good. I met with two groups of Lake Forest faculty today. There was no lack of inquiry or expression, let me say. You do not have a Wheaton College issue on that re in that regard. Um, I think that solidarity with people who are being hurt is good. And I think that right now, for Wheaton College, these two values are in tension. And on this, I will say I have a respectful disagreement with Wheaton College, but I would emphasize the respectful part. Wheaton College gets to be what Wheaton College is, right? And actually, it's quite clear what it is. Uh, um, they are very clear about who they are. My, I think not, not only do I have great appreciation for Professor Hawkins for her solidarity with Muslims. Um, I also appreciate her saying, let's ask the question, what is evangelicalism right now? And I find her doing that in a respectful way. So I feel like there could be very good things that come out of this. Uh, but I, I just want to point out that, that I, I think that continuity of identity is very important. And that is a value that Wheaton College indexes very highly on. By the way, that doesn't mean you all have to think it's important, right? Um, but I think Wheaton College gets to be what Wheaton College is. I think that what is, in a way, most important here is the manner in which this moves forward. What's the what, are the, what, are, what is the tone of the words that are said? Uh, what, is the, um, what motives are we assigning to people with whom we disagree? So uh, Phil Reichen, the president of Wheaton College, emailed me a few months ago and he said, hey, I hear your son likes baseball. I got two tickets for a box of the Sox again. You want to come? I'm like, yeah, thank you. We have deep disagreements on fundamental things. We like baseballs together. He likes eight-year-old boys. My son, you know, friendly with him. I appreciate that. I think that that's part of pluralism, the recognition of identity differences, the ability to have a relationship, the common commitment to cheering for losing Chicago teams. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Follow up to that question. Um, one of the objections to Diana X pluralism is the idea that she 
soul. Do you want to, is there a particular case you have in mind that you think would be useful to, to hold up? Right. So uh, I, th- it seems to me that different religious communities get to define their own space in a way. So, for example, uh, non-Muslims are not allowed in Mecca. Non-Catholics don't take communion. There are uh, there are certain strains of Judaism who only want other Jews around the Shabbat table. I don't actually view that as, as, a, uh, as a dangerous barrier as long as it is clear that this is a private space and there are other spaces in which we relate. If that, does that make sense? So, so it seems to me that Wheaton College is a stark example of this. They are defining their campus as a particular type of space. But I've spoken there. I wouldn't expect to be a tenured professor there as a Muslim, right? But their understanding of having a relationship with an outside Muslim speaker is different than their understanding of who gets to be in the community. If you want to be in that community, you have to sign a 12-part declaration of faith. If you want to uh, go to Mecca, you have to take the Shahada. If you want to take communion in a Catholic church, you have to become Catholic. It seems to me that as long as distinct communities are clear about what it means to be in the inner sanctum, so to speak, it just means that they're a community. Now, if they, are, if they seek to build a fortress entirely around the community, I might ask a question or two, but to be very honest, I have great admiration for the Amish. Right? And, and the Amish, I have great admiration for communities that say continuity of our identity is our highest value. Now, they sacrifice many things when that happens, right? But it is clear who the Amish are and who they are trying to be. I see the Amish as good, as, as, in, as people who get to share in American pluralism as, as much as anybody else does. They simply have a clearer idea of what their space is. That space is more distinct than other people's spaces, and they have uh, they have more modest ways of interacting with others. But the Amish get to be who they are, and I think that the when we use the words respect for identity, it sounds, it sounds a little bit third grade-ish, right? Like my son comes home for third grade, I'm like, what'd you learn today? He's like, respect. I'm like, yeah, we did the same thing at my organization, right? <laughs> Except we're 30 years older. Um, can you respect identities? What, there is a deep challenge in respecting identities with which you have fundamental disagreements. Now, I think that there are limits to this, right? Uh, um, there's, there are legal limits to this, and there are probably ethical limits as well. But the Amish get to be the Amish. I would like to seek a relationship with the Amish in a way that is appropriate for them. 
I would like to recognize that there are things in the common good that the Amish and I have in common. For example, First Amendment rights to free expression of religion. It might be a less robust relationship than the one that I would have with other people, but I still think it fits within the, the model of pluralism. Um, I think the people that, I, I think that Diana X comment on exclusivists are not, is not, her, her deep problem isn't necessarily with theological exclusivists, it's with civic exclusivists. It, it's with people who are saying, I don't want you, to, Brendan, who's one of her students and is on staff at IFYC is nodding, nodding with gusto. <laughs> Uh, Diane Ick is a professor of comparative religions, right? She, she has come across enough theologically exclusivist communities to, uh, and knows enough about their theology to say, listen, this is, this is how you interpret your text and that's, you have every right to do that. It's people who say, uh, this city council will not allow prayers from any tradition but the one that I am from. It's mayors who say, I will not, give, I will not allow a Sikh Gurdwara to purchase a, a church property and get it rezoned as a more generalized house of worship. In your Sikh Gurdwara, you can pray to God in the way that you believe is appropriate and you can believe that the ways that other people pray is wrong. That is your right, That's part of, that might be part of your religious interpretation. That doesn't happen to be true of Sikhs, but you know, for argument's sake. What you cannot do is define a civic space as religiously exclusive and allow only your tradition to, to reign there. Other questions or comments? Yes, nice to see you again, by the way. Yeah. Right. Um, so, I'll tell you a little story. So, um, my last book, Sacred Ground, it's, it's the blue book back there. It is a comparison of present-day Islamophobia with past eras anti-Catholicism. And so I'm reading all of this stuff about the Kennedy campaign, right? And in 1959 and 1960, no small number of mainstream Christians were saying things like, if we elect John F. Kennedy president of the United States, the Pope will descend upon Washington, D.C., and the flag of the Vatican will fly at the White House. So October 2016, I'm in Washington, D.C., on the south lawn of the White House, flying the flag of the Vatican. The Pope descends with President Obama, and people go wild, right? So that's, that's what we're playing for at IFYC. It's not that we don't, it's not that we're not concerned about what's happening right now, but if you think about American anti-Catholicism in 1959, and you think about where, where we are with regards to Catholics in 2015, I mean, that's 50, 55 years, and it's a stunning shift. Right, if you could rouse Norman Vincent Peale, is that a familiar name to anybody? 
He ran a very famous anti-Kennedy conference in October of 1960. If you could rouse him from his grave and say, Reverend Peel, there are six Catholics in the Supreme Court, he would, he would think that everything that he feared in 1959 had come to pass, right? So again, at an organization like ours, we, we're constantly up on the news. We're constantly, you know, I can, I can, I can talk to you about the Wheaton College angle from, from lots of different angles. Uh, um, but we know that societies change over the long haul. And it is very likely that the change in attitudes that Americans have regarding Jews is a long-term change. The change in attitudes that Americans have around Catholics is a long-term change. And that's good not just for Catholics and Jews, it's good for American society, right? I mean, like, just think about the Catholic institutions in Chicago that, that all of us rely on. Loyola, DePaul, Dominican universities, Loyola Hospital, right? Countless social service agencies. I mean, imagine if anti-Catholicism won. It's not just a violation of the dignity of Catholics. It's a barrier to the contribution of American citizens. We at IFYC are thinking to ourselves, what does it take for a society to welcome the contributions of diverse citizens over the long haul? That's why, that's why, that's why we play on college campuses, right? We're looking at, where'd Raphael go? He's right there, right? Like, young man who's part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship also happens to be the president of the student body, right? We're, we're wondering where Raphael is gonna be in 20 years, right? We're, we're wondering uh, what Ahmed Sadri students are gonna become in 15 or 20 years. Uh, we are trying to nurture a knowledge base such that what people know about Islam is not just from the evening news. We're trying to create interfaith studies minors on college campuses so people enter into everything from human services professions to national security professions with facility and fluency around religious diversity. So does today's talk of religious prejudice bother me? The answer is yes. We're playing for 50 years from now and it is a great it's a great luxury to be a part of an institution that's doing that. And I think that that's one of the things that American college campuses do very well. You know, you're playing, you're playing the long game. There's a great line that if, uh, if, if you want a great city, build a great university and wait 100 years, right? Um, that's, that's the logic that, that we're following. Um, I see President Scott getting up. He has a poem for you. Um, I want to thank you so much for having me with you tonight.